I'm Buddy Sampson, the associate pastor, and some of you maybe don't know that because I'm never around second hour. I'm back in that classroom, and because we always run over in our class, I don't get to meet, like I've introduced myself to a few people this morning expecting them to be like, I've been here for six months. And, um, but I got to meet some new folks, one of which is Josh, and I won't call him out, but I, I guess I did, but he looks like me, and I was excited to meet another bald guy with a beard, Simeon. Simeon, nice to see you this morning. Um, I told Josh, but true story, my, oh, I don't remember if it was Seth, I think it was Seth, maybe it was Oliver, a long time ago, literally brought me this book and says, Dad, did you write this? And I was like, no. He's like, are you sure? I said, no, I didn't write this. Why? He goes, that looks like you. And it was Shel Silverstein from Where the Sidewalk In, <laughs> who I feel like I don't look anything like. I looked at him, he's kind of, he's a black guy, kind of messed up jaw, but he has, he's bald with a beard, and that's all it takes, and we're, you know, we're, we're practically related. Um, I'm excited to get to, to preach to you all this morning this word from Luke. Um, as I got ready to prepare for this, this is a true story, I, I had to find a quiet place um, to get my sermon prep done, because my somewhere quieter than my house, so I went to Fort Collins 4x4 and off-road, this true story, and I did most of my sermon prep there, sitting in Robin's office while my truck got worked on, and um, it was awesome, and I took in this big stack of books that I was thinking I was, I mean, I don't know, like four or five books that I was going to use as kind of like a commentary and some reference points, um, but you know, I just, I, I started to read the passage, and I started following the concordance in my study Bible and my reading my study notes, and then there's some articles in the back here. And I just was decided I was going to just not use any of those books and just use this this book. And, and uh, so that could be a really bad thing, just for the record. I, you know, great great preachers tr- read commentaries and really trust the wisdom. They say it's you know standing on the shoulders of giants, and I think that's a very true thing. I think that's a wise thing. However, and I, I wanted to spend just a second and plea with you to own this particular Bible. This is an ESV study Bible from Crossway. Um, I'm not endorsing it. I don't get commission. I'm simply telling you this Bible is going to a four-year Bible college almost in a book because it has tremendous amounts of resources and notes and articles, and you can learn a ton. And I I just feel like um, a lot of times we overlook not just the Word of God, which is sufficient, but I think we would all agree this can be confusing sometimes, and I, I agree with you that the Bible can be confusing. I think it's coherent, but I, when I say confusing, I mean, how does this relate? And having the concordance and having the notes and having a timeline and seeing pictures and maps, I'm a map geek. I spend so much time on the maps in here. They're all worn out, um, I, and I use Google Earth now. I don't know if you've ever done that, but you want to just spend, spend, spend 30 minutes on Google Earth panning over Jerusalem. It's pretty sweet. It really does make things kind of come to life if you use, like, the 3D version and whatnot. But I called you to have this Bible, and I'm saying this right now, and this, and this is honest. If you don't have this Bible and you can't afford it right now or don't know where to get it, come talk to me after service, and I'll either find it for you or I'll buy it for you. Uh, because, but I think everyone one should own it. Um, this passage today is, there are, I have six big ideas for this passage today, which you're probably like, oh my gosh. I didn't run over, though. Um, there, there's a lot here, though, guys, and I'll just tell you, the Lord has a way, I feel like, um, timing when I preach to the very things I am the least comfortable preaching on. And I think that's a a grace from God, honestly, to draw me near to him in that way. And I say that because this this passage includes a lot of supernatural realities. And I've told some of you before, you know this about me, but I I really struggle with supernatural stuff. Um, I joked last, you know, last hour that uh, 
I love, I'm an engineering guy at heart. I love math. I love physics. And I love to see the world through that lens. And when things penetrate that, it bothers me. And I try to write it off. And again, that's sin in my own heart. But I think it's important that I raise that on the front end because we're going to spend some time picking apart the fact that, that uh, the, spirit, the supernatural aspect of this is relevant. And it's honestly, it's essential to the health of your own Christian faith. I would say it's, I would go so far as to say that the, the reality of your faith rests on the belief in some of these supernatural realities that we're going we're gonna to talk about today. So we're picking up in Luke. Zach did the first 25 verses of Luke. Open your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. Um, 26 through 38 will be our passage. And again, we're picking up here for a little bit of context. As of right now, Gabriel's talked to Elizabeth and, and told her she's going to have a child, which you know is going to be John the Baptist to pave the way for Jesus. And now we're moving ahead, and the, and the angel is speaking to, to Mary, Gabriel. So let's read here, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and I feel like I need to clarify, that sixth month is the sixth month of, Israel, of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Okay. In the sixth month, of the, angel, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of, of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom to this kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and is in the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So right off the bat, my, my, my big truth is going to be that God is keeping his promises even when he seems quiet. Um, even when he is quiet, he's keeping his promises. And I think one thing that, to, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to imagine that at this moment, as this is unfolding in history, the Jews who are waiting for the Messiah are largely unaware of this reality. And again, we'll get into how they became aware shortly thereafter. But the point is, after a 400 years of silence, the Lord is not actually silent. He's working and he's bringing about his plan um, to come to pass. So as we think about this, my first big idea, which is in the first uh, few verses there, is that the first verse actually, just look back over it there. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee of, named Nazareth. Big idea number one, God is active in his salvation plan. God sent Gabriel. God acted. Gabriel didn't say, do I have permission? It wasn't Gabriel's idea. It was God's idea, and he brought it to pass through his angel Gabriel. And I think it's very critical that the first hermeneutic that we, when we, the first way we look at Scripture is to pay attention to the details. And one of the details is that God, in space and time, sent Gabriel to Mary. And I want to point out that he did not make an offer to Mary. He didn't ask Mary a question. He told Mary, this is what's going to happen. This is what Gabriel did. And this is how God works, not only to bring Jesus to us incarnate, it's how he works today. God acts in salvation. 
He sins, he causes belief, he causes faith, he brings it upon us, and this was his aim. And the truth is, he descends from glory on the throne, down in great humility, to intervene, is what he's going to be as Jesus, but before this, to prepare the, way, prepare the way, he sends Gabriel. And I just think it's so critical that the Christian doesn't fall into the trap that God has initiated things in creation and has walked away from it. Or that there was just this natural process in history that had to unfold, that God was waiting to happen Friends, this is not how God acts. From the beginning of Scripture, the first page to the last, God acts in history. He acts for his namesake. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And we need to, to rest in that reality that that has never changed. That at this moment, God is acting, and he's acting to save. And this is one of the initial acts in his act of salvation, obviously, was to bring the Son. And we will come, again, we will come back to that. Now, I think it's easy for us. Again, I'm going to jump into my anti-supernatural mode for a second. Don't, do you guys feel like I feel that if an angel were to show up and talk to you, first of all, you'd be scared too. Let's just get that out of the way. Even if you think you're a tough guy, you're, you would be scared. Even if the angel was tiny, it doesn't matter. I, we know it's true. You know it's true. I mean, I, I don't know about you. Like, um, just, oh, just a quick true story. I, I was mowing at Quail Chafe Golf, Golf Course outside of Louisville, Kentucky for a little in-between job. And one morning I'm on my riding mower and I'm driving around the green and it's 5 o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black and I have this... Toro out front, real mower, and there's this one little beat-up light on the front that kind of like bobbles, you can't really see well. And I'm driving, and I'm just, I'm tired, and I turn the corner, and there's a little girl standing there, little girl like this, standing there. And I went, ah, and I turned, <laughs> and I immediately drove the other way, and these little hydrostatic mowers aren't fast, they're like a walking pace, and I'm like, as fast as I can move. Now, I, I got the courage up, and I was like, it's a little girl. But the problem was there was a movie called The Grudge out at the time. It, 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 and, and it went deep. It went real deep that I was really legit scared. And I had cold chills. And I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. See what it is. I'm just, it's fine. It's no big deal. Right? I turn around. I drive back. Get this light. It's, it's just the ball washer machine with the towel, like, <laughs> draped over to dry off your golf ball. Here's my point. I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't share this first service. This illustration was absent. Here's the point in saying this, though. This wasn't supposed to be there, and that was enough to startle me to death. And at best, it was like a five-year-old girl, and I was terrified. <laughs> and so here's my, here's my point. Mary would be terrified. You would be terrified. But can we be honest for a second and say that if an angel spoke to you, there's a part of you right now that longs to believe that your faith would be stronger if an angel just talked to you? If an angel showed up and spoke... Is there not a party that likes to think, like, this is kind of a luxury for Mary? Like, an angel talked to her. And I feel like if God just sent an angel and talked to me, I'd be like, my faith would be stronger. I'd believe. It'd be easy for me to believe. And I think we fall into that kind of thinking. And I think Scripture even speaks to that, the faultiness of that thinking. But let me just make this point, because the last thing I want to do is say it's untrue. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that it is true, that that may be impactful for you. But now I want to undercut that tremendously and say this. This book is God's revelation to you. It is more clear than what Mary heard from the angel Gabriel. It is more comprehensive. It's more thorough. It has the whole story, the whole narrative. Mary is getting from Gabriel a piece, and yet we would cling to that for our faith oftentimes instead of this book where we have the totality of it, and we can read it and study it and know it. And so I, I just want to caution you to fall into the trap of thinking that an angel, a supernatural reality is going to give you a deeper faith. And I'm telling you, this book has everything that you need by the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the deepest, 
most indwelt, strongest, comprehensive faith that you can possibly have. This book, not an angel showing up. And so I think, again, we, fall, we can fall victim to that thinking. I'm asking you not to do that and consider that as we read this book right now, the Lord is intending to bring us into a deeper union with him and a stronger faith. So let's look at now how Mary is described here for just a second. I think it's important. Looking right back into verse 28 there uh, through 31, we read, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, I think there are a few things. We, I said at the beginning, there are some deep theological truths that we have to know that are revealed in this passage that our, our faith hinges upon to some degree. And one of them is going to be this. Mary was a sinner. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. That it, What we see here is Mary having God's favor on her. Mary doesn't have the favor for God. And you're, you're saying, well, wait, wait, why are you saying grace, favor? These are interchangeable expressions. This is the word charis in the Greek, which means great, grace. And so we, what some versions of the Bible say is, oh, graceful one is how Mary is described, full of grace. Where did this grace come from? Mary? The whole point of grace is unmerited favor, favor that has not been earned. This is the grace of God. And just for the record, too, this isn't just my opinion. Mary disbelieves in Mary's sinlessness. Look over at verse 47. Zach will preach this next week. Verse 46 and 47, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary knows Mary needs a Savior. Now, in Catholicism, this is often referred to as the Immaculate Conception, and there is the belief that Mary is without sin. And, and this, this matters big time to our, our theology and our understanding of who Jesus is. Mary, Catholic Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, believes that Mary, and again, I, I want to I temper this, this belief did not come from the Bible. It came from philosophy applied in the early church outside of the Bible in an effort to justify and understand how Jesus could be sinless. It did not come from Scripture. It became church tradition. Now it's taught even in the catechism in the Roman Catholic Church and otherwise that Mary was without original sin and then never sinned in life. That is out, that is out of the bounds of this book. That's not included here. In fact, I would go so far as to say that belief in the Immaculate Conception or in Mary's absence of original sin or being sinless is a heresy that undermines what Jesus Christ did on the cross, period. Uh, I, I mean to be that blunt about it. It is necessary that we disbelieve in Mary's sinlessness in that regard. She got God's favor. Everyone is a sinner with the exception of Jesus Christ. Every human that ever lived. And this is not my opinion. This is straight from Scripture. Paul says in Galatians 2, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe that in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one, not no one with the exception of Mary, no one will be justified. We also read in Romans 5.12, therefore, and now this is going to get challenging because you've just heard me talk about original sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's important that you capture the, the tense there. That in Adam, 
death spread to all men because all sinned, past tense. How did, how did you, how is Adam's sin applied as if you did it, past tense? And the reason is simple. This is, where I, this is where original sin comes from. Some of you may have heard it called federal headship, and it's just a way for us to understand what happened in Adam. In the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, all mankind sinned in Adam. Everybody sinned. Adam's sin, as a representative, would cause everyone ultimately to have in us original, what is called original sin. We're going to come back at this in just a moment, but it includes Mary, and it has to. Now, if you're sitting there troubled, like, I don't know if I believe in original sin. Like, you know, I think kids, this, and I think this probably only applies to people that don't have children. (laughs) People that don't have children will assume that children are sinless until they make a mistake. And so let's, you know what, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, those of you that believe that children might be sinless for just a second, and I want to ask you this question. When your two-year-old lies to you, did that make them a liar? Or was the fact that they were a liar the reason they lied to you? Sin starts in the heart. When you lie, it is evidence of the fact that you're a liar. It doesn't make you a liar. Lying started before you lied. The same exists for your child. The same exists for me, for every one of us. The same existed for Mary. She had original sin, and she was a sinner, and she needed a Savior. And it's important that we understand that to be true. Um, let's think about now what this favor meant. You ready? This is so, I had never given this thought until this week. Oh, favored one. The Lord has used this expression. He has found favor on people. We see this a lot in Scripture. We see this for Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Um, Solomon, David, uh, Ruth. We see it through Scripture. Noah, actually. We see this, that God has favor when he's going to do something big. And we tend to look at that and see God's favor, that he's found favor in somebody as like, you're in good graces, which is kind of true to some extent, right? But let's think about what this favor meant for Mary. It meant that within no time, they would have to flee to Egypt to avoid Jesus being murdered. And merely because of her favor and conceiving the the Son of God, a lot of young kids would die in Jerusalem because Herod would send out the mandate to kill the children who were under two. And so all of a sudden, we're going to see that Mary's favor resulted in the death of many people, her fleeing to Egypt, what probably in life would become her reproach, her ridicule, that people would say, here's this floozy, claiming to be a virgin and has a kid. She's a liar. She's probably a harlot. She's probably a prostitute. Think about what she would have to suffer in terms of social opinion. Fast forward just a little bit from there. Her, her son would claim to be the king of the Jews. Her son. This, is what, this was the Lord's favor. He'd be spit on and mocked and ridiculed and murdered. Thanks, God. What favor. What grace. Friends, I'm telling you, Zach has referenced this before, and as have I. As American Western Christians, we are so prone to connecting God's favor for us with a simplicity to our life, with a, an ease. We, we call it the prosperity gospel, and I, take, I don't take issue with the expression, but I take issue with the consequence of calling it that. The consequence of saying it's the prosperity gospel 
gives us this luxury of looking to the Joel Osteens of the world and saying, look at that wolf in sheep's clothing. And we don't look in our own hearts to recognize that deep down, the way that unbelief tends to manifest itself in us is when our life gets difficult and we're a believer and we're curious why God would do this to us. Do you, you know, by all accounts, Mary knew who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do. Scholars believe that's the case. I didn't have to go read books for it. It's in my notes in here. <laughs> Scholars believe that Mary knew who Jesus was and that she maybe came to a fuller understanding as time went on, right? Which would make sense. When she sees Jesus presented in the temple and says she and Joseph marvel at what they were saying about, what Simeon was saying about, about Jesus. When he, she asked him to turn the water into wine, like, hey, we're running out of wine. So she knew, she, she, she obviously knew some things. Do you think she thought it was worth it? Do you think Mary thought this is worth it? Or do you think she went through maybe even moments in her, her own life where she was like, what is this about? I don't think I ever hit my next big idea, which is God's favor isn't earned, it's received. And when it's received, it comes with trial. Always. Don't be fooled. Something I hope that you cling to as a believer is this truth, because you and Mary have one thing significantly in common. Mary's commission from God was to bring Jesus to the world. Mary was obedient and sweet. She was probably 13 or 14 years old when Gabriel appears to her. That would probably be overwhelming, but she was, she was committed to what the Lord said. She was his servant. And what I'm telling you today, Christian, is that you have the exact same commission. It just looks different in how it manifests. Your job is to bring Jesus to the world the favor that God has found on you in grace by virtue of the cross, his grace extended to you because your sin was paid for, that the same Jesus who died for Mary's sin died for your sin on the cross, lived a perfect life, died that you might receive the grace of God, unmerited favor, having done nothing to earn it. What is the appropriate response from Mary? was to bring Jesus to the world because it was God's command for her. What is the response for us who've received Jesus? To bring Jesus to the world because that's God's commission for us. Paul says it pretty clear in Romans 1 at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. He says Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This grace, Paul says clearly, was to bring about the obedience of faith. You know, you've, some of you have heard my story, and Brooke and I were in a church where grace was very much perverted into a license, the words of Jude, for immorality, a license to persist in sin, uh, a no more of a need to battle your sin. And there, there is truth that you will not battle your sin to heaven. That is truth. Uh, you won't earn favor with God. It is absolutely a lie that we don't look at our life as debtors of grace to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. And I was in a church that did not preach that. And I feel strong conviction about what grace really means because I do not believe grace means, grace means relax, take it easy, your life's going to be fine. And I think the church has tainted what grace means into that reality. And that's why on Sunday mornings across the country, our church is full of professing Christians who don't see it as the power to bring about the obedience of faith. And he goes on to say, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. 
That's what grace is for. And I think that Mary understood this, and I think it's, ne- it's necessary that we understand it as well. You know, I, I'll come back to this. Um, as we think about this, we move forward in the text, and we talk about who this guy is. We read, starting in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Um, My next big idea is that Jesus is king and everyone will bow to him. And this rubs people the wrong way immediately. I know that like uh, when Donald Trump was elected president in 2016, the not my president hashtag went around all over Twitter. And then the same thing happened when Joe Biden got elected, you know, president four years later. And Americans love, we love to not be under someone else's rule or authority. In fact, one of the most interesting books that I've read, and you've heard me reference it a couple times, perhaps, especially if you've been in the Sunday school class, it's a book by David Wells called No Place for Truth. And in this book, is written back in 1993, and it is still so incredibly relevant for today. One of the things that he talks about is connecting the American democratic philosophy to one of the greatest problems in the American church. And that is that we love to have a say. And if we don't have a say, we feel oppressed. I'm not here to say that democracy is a bad thing. I am absolutely here to say democracy in your theology is a horrible thing. Because Jesus is king. And whether or not you treat him as king doesn't change his kingship. It's easy to sit in here and to look outside and look at the people who are blatantly disrespecting Jesus or whatever, and not look in the mirror and ask ourselves, do we live with Jesus as our king? Is that how we treat him? Do we treat Jesus as the ultimate authority in our life who guides us and governs us with his words? Do we treat him that way? And before I paint this like stoic picture of Jesus, authoritarian Jesus, understand Jesus's way for you is love and joy. Jesus's way for you is the fruit of the spirit. This is what he intends as you submit to his kingship. But don't be fooled that he comes along as a friend and pats you on the back and just wants you to encourage you to be more gentle. He demands it, so he's king. And I think it's critical that as we think about this, we don't think he's king for the Christian. He is king of the world. Richard Dawkins will bow the knee to Jesus. Sam Harris will bow the knee to Jesus. Richard Pierre Bogosian will bow the knee to Jesus. Christopher Hitchens, Alan Watts, name them. Name the people that flood YouTube. They will bow to Jesus. There will be no such world where they get to escape bowing to Jesus. The question is, will it be on this side of glory or will it be in hell? That's the only difference. Jesus is king regardless. And I think that the point that's being made here, and I think where we try to get an out, especially as Gentiles, I'm assuming everybody in here is a Gentile. If, if not, I apologize. Um, Aaron Bacchus, who used to go to church here, he, he moved you know, to Denver, but if he were here, I always get to call out Aaron because he actually does have like Jewish heritage. Um, and like, it, he has, it's a good part of his testimony, actually. But this applies to you, and I think the out that people get is where it says here that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and I, here comes the next, like, theological truth that you guys need to understand. You are, as faithful believers, in the house of Jacob. Now, where does that come from? How is that possible? Because Jacob is Israel, right? Short little history lesson. The promise is made to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, and that it would happen through Abraham and his offspring, which would be Isaac, who would then have Jacob, who would then become Israel and would have the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the short history lesson. The David reigned over Israel. 
Jesus is going to reign over Israel. That's the house of Jacob. How are you in Israel? You're a Gentile. Well, if you read in Scripture, you get to Romans 9 especially, you get this picture where Paul is clarifying that the children of Abraham are the children of the promise because Abraham's Hebrewness did not save him. His faith did. By faith, Abraham was justified. Right? That's what Romans chapter 4 is about. So because of that, the children of the promise, the children of Abraham, are people who have faith. So you are of the house of Jacob in that not all Israel is Israel. There is Israel who are not the children of the promise. And there is Israel who are the children of the promise. And there are Gentiles who are not children of the promise. And there are Gentiles who are the children of the promise. So what you need to know today, and just make sure that this is loud and clear, and I know I'm getting redundant about this, is Jesus is king of Jew and Gentile. He's king of all people. That's what we had Brandon read at the beginning for scripture reading. I'm going to read it again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you know who said that in the vision that Daniel had? Gabriel. Gabriel said that. The same Gabriel that shows up to talk to Mary and give Mary, hey, when I was telling Daniel about this and he prophesied this centuries ago, this is it. This is the guy, and he is king. How does Mary respond to this? Let's keep reading. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. My next big idea is that Jesus is holy and we are not. You know, I could... Um, there are certain things in Christianity, I feel like in the last couple, this has happened forever. I mean, this goes back to like the early church, right? You can read early church history and this same exact problem happened. The problem was that people want to write off the things in scripture that don't seem to make sense in a physical world. And listen, I love those arguments because I'm that guy. That is how my unbelief manifests itself more than anything else. Um, and I get convicted about it though, and I want to make sure that you guys share the same conviction First of all, the, the, the slide into theological liberalism doesn't start with looking at a social reality that you want to justify. It doesn't start with, you know, my relative's homosexual and I can't not love them. Well, these are a bunch of false dichotomies. The Bible doesn't say not to love them. It doesn't say any of that. We create a thing, and then we say, I'm going to conform my theology around the way that I feel about this group or this individual or these people, and that's where the slide to liberalism comes. Rarely for the Christian. For the professing Christian, here's where it comes. They read the Bible, and they say, that can't be true. And then they walk out, and they look at the world, and they see the majesty of God in the universe and in creation. They see a God who's created the cosmos and if, again, I recommended last service, keep up with NASA and the Hubble telescope stuff. James Webb is the other one, I guess it's called. You should keep up with this. Read about this online. It'll blow your mind about how far they're seeing. And all it is doing is creating more questions, not more answers. And it's causing people to 
lose their mind about how big and vast and incredibly designed this is. Did you know that there are a higher proportion of astronauts or Christians than not? Isn't that interesting, considering they study the sciences to the nth degree? They leave, they look at the earth, they go into the cosmos, and they say, something had to do with this. Take that same thinking, and then I want you to think about the virgin birth. Do you come to this text like me and say, virgin birth? The God that created the cosmos is no way he could conceive a child in a virgin. This is what my brain does. And I think there's no way. Come on. She couldn't be a virgin. Doesn't make sense. It matters that she's a virgin. It matters that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to make this loud and clear. There are, there are doctrines, there are teachings in Christianity that are up for debate, so to speak. And we're not going to get into those right now. But there, and sometimes you hear this language of there are primary issues, secondary issues, tertiary issues, meaning this is essential for gospel understanding and salvation. These things, you know, are really important, second tier, and then like the third tier, imagine like concentric rings. These things, pl plenty of liberty for people to have different op opinions about these things. We're not going to get any of them now, because if I were to name one as an example, that's where your brain would go, and you'd stop listening <laughs> to this. I'm not going to do it. Here is one of them that's a first tier issue. Mary was a virgin and conceived of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you why that's the case so that you don't think it's just a matter of my opinion or something I think you ought to believe. Here's why this matters. We just read about how sin entered the world and that the idea of original sin affected all people, which includes Mary. Right? If it includes Mary and it includes Joseph, and Mary and Joseph conceived a child, that child has original sin. That's a child of Adam. That child can't be the second Adam, as Paul calls him in Romans 12. Can't call Jesus the second Adam. That's still the first Adam. He's under the sin of the first Adam in the fall. Well, that can't happen. So there had to be the Holy Spirit, who was divine, to conceive Christ, that he would be divine and out of bounds of the original sin that came from Adam. So it's important that we believe that Mary was indeed a virgin. And listen, some of you are like, well, that's hard for me. I get it. I get it. But cling to its reality, because in the absence of that, Jesus died for his own sins not yours. If Jesus was a human, he died for his own sins only. If he was 100% human and not 100% God, if Jesus was born of two human parents, he has the sin of Adam, then he died for his, let's pretend Jesus didn't sin on earth, but he was born of two parents, but he was still sinless. Let's just pretend that. Then he's dying for his own original sin, not yours. Your faith is contingent upon the belief that Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit and Jesus born sinless. It's necessary. It's necessary for the gospel to be applied to you. Otherwise, Jesus died in vain or he died for Jesus. Now, another reason we have to cling to this idea was that the effects of the fall are practical effects. They're not merely like, they are, they are spiritual in their nature, but they actually work themselves out in our life in a way that is pretty frightening. Look what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my ESV study Bible. I'm going to read this little thing to you. This is just another pitch for this. I don't make commission on this, I, uh, on the sale of these Bibles. Um, I just really am passionate that you would have the access to this and read it. There's just so much articles and literature about historical theology versus philosophical theology versus systematic theology, about what church orthodoxy is, about history from the beginning of time and extra biblical texts. It's all here, and I'm just, I'm just going to, that'll be the last plug, but I'm asking you, I'm asking you to buy this Bible and study it and read it or let me buy it for you. Okay, what were the consequences of the fall of Adam? Now, as you think about this, 
I want you to hear it through two lenses. Number one, what it means to you, naturally, for you, for mankind on earth. But number two, what it would mean for Jesus. Okay, let's, let's listen. God rightly judged the rebellion of Adam and Eve and brought a curse on them and all their offspring. The curse brought physical and spiritual death, separation from God and alienation from him and others. All people are now conceived, born, and live in this fallen, depraved condition. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, Inherited guilt and corruption leaves every person completely unable to save himself or to please God. There are at least six ways this pervasive inability affects everyone until God intervenes with his sovereign, gracious, saving power. Mankind is totally unable to. Now listen, these come straight from multiple places of Scripture. I'd be happy to show you this after. Listen to these six things that happen as a consequence of Adam's sin, okay? The inability to repent or trust Christ to see or enter the kingdom of God, to obey God and thereby glorify him, to attain spiritual understanding, to live lives pleasing to God, to receive eternal or spiritual life. That is not Jesus' reality because he is holy. That is your reality because you are not. It matters that we see the distinction, that we understand Mary, who Mary is, faithful, God-fearing, Mary, pure, Mary, a virgin at 13 or 14, listening intently, a servant of God, we should honor Mary, but we should recognize Mary as a sinner who needs Jesus, just like we do. And it matters that we see her as such, and that, that we see Jesus as perfectly holy and conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, the last thing I want to say, and this is almost like a side note for just a second, this little tangent. If you are willing to fold on what scripture says when it becomes hard for you to understand, then you will absolutely join a pattern of straying away from the truth claims of scripture because they're hard for you to make sense. And I just want to say this, and some of you, I've been in, I, when I teach a Sunday school class or a Bible study, I always draw a picture of the Bible, and I draw a little stick man above the Bible and a little stick man below the Bible. And the reason I draw this is not so much for the sake of the class, but as a reminder for me that I am one or the other of those two people. I am standing over top of Scripture, lording over it with what I desire for it to say, or I'm standing underneath of it and its authority and reading what it says and believing that to be true. But I can't be in both places at the same time. I would simply call you to consider that a disbelief in the virgin birth, a disbelief in the conception of the Holy Spirit, will open the floodgates for you to enter into other heresies and other things that the Bible says that you wrestle with. So don't do it. Read it for what it says and believe it, but don't just believe it tacitly as you read across it, but believe it deeply because of what it means theologically for your salvation and who Jesus Christ is. Moving on. How does, how does Mary respond to this? And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So my last big idea is that the appropriate response to God is to submit as a servant to his word. Mary didn't look and say, I can't do it. 
the Lord put what was going to be 30 years of turmoil in front of her as the favored one. And she said, let it be according to your word. I'm your servant. And the exact same truth is what we have to believe as Christians. We have to believe that we are servants of the Lord and let us submit and do it according to his word. We have to believe that's true. We, we have to see that that's what the Lord expects from us, that he expects obedience from us and that he is going to bless that obedience. We, we have to get out of the frame of mind that our submission as a servant to the Lord is going to bring a lower quality of life than we may have in its absence. I'm going to speak to young people about this just for a second because it's just such a passion of mine. I had, if, okay, I'll do this thought experiment a little bit differently, but I have used this a lot in my life. If I were to ask you how to get home when church ends, how would you, don't tell me out loud, that would be a little chaotic. I want you to think about, actually I am, Bridget, how do you get home when church ends? I mean, like, literally from that seat. Give me, give me a few steps to getting home. Congrats. <laughs> College 101. Okay. Tell me everything that Bridget said she wasn't going to do. We, for some reason, listen to Christianity, and we think about... God, I'm not going to do this behavior and not do this and not do this. And we consume ourselves with an abstinence from typical behaviors mentality and that that is our Christianity and that our Christianity becomes reduced to our moral behavior. And the whole time God's going, I've got the path for you and it's incredible. And we sit around saying, what do I need to cut out of my life? Now, I'm not saying you don't need to cut things out of your life. What I'm saying is that is a consequence of going home. This is what Mary has said is, let it be according to your word. If we live in accordance with God's word, we lose nothing. We gain everything. Our life is more joyful. This was the, the, the lie of Satan my entire childhood. Go be a Christian and don't sin so you can go to heaven. And just heaven will be worth all of the fun you forsake on earth. That's literally like, the, that was the gospel. Do the morally upright things so you can go to heaven and yeah it's going to suck for the next 80 years but then you'll be in heaven it'll be worth it that's such trash it sounds so sweet it's a lie of satan spend the 80 years of your life as a servant saying let me live according to your word and experience joy experience the fullness of joy become a useful purposeful tool in the hands of an almighty god who is king become his weapon for the sake of his kingdom and the sake of your joy this is what this is what we're offered and this is what we want to offer the world. And so I, I don't know where you are in your own walk. And I want to say this. I didn't say this first service, but for some of you, belief in this is a challenge. Can I tell you something that I think I want to bring comfort to you? Your desire to believe, the Lord will bless. When Peter said, when the, 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 the guy who's Jesus healed his kid, or he, no, it's, Peter, it's an ax. Peter and John and and. They say, I believe, help my unbelief. And I love that passage. Such a reassurance for me. And I'm telling you that today, as you think about this, you consider your life, you consider the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and you consider that reality, what God was doing when he sent Gabriel, penetrated his, his creation to bring his flock to himself, that anyone 
who would believe in Jesus that he had died for their sins would be reconciled to God, would have eternal life, and would by the Holy Spirit be given the keys to understanding and a life well spent in trial and turmoil for the sake of the kingdom, all of it worth it. That's what he's offered. So if you haven't believed that today, I call you to believe it is true. And if you have, would you be like Mary? I'm your servant. Let me do, do as your word tells me to do. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Bible. And I just thank you for the fact that so many people out there are unsure of what you desire from them, what you have for them, because they don't have this word, God. And they, we know there are thousands of people groups who don't have scripture in their own language. And yet here we sit with Bibles collecting dust on our bookshelves as we seek, a, seek something miraculous like an angel or a vision or a dream or a symbol or a sign, God, and you've given us your word. And I just, God, I just beg you that Overland Church, that this church and the, the universal church globally, God, would just have a renewed commitment to reading your word for what it says, that we would take all of our predispositions and our, our doubts and we would throw them at the cross and say, God, we can't do it ourselves. We need you to do it. We need your Holy Spirit to do it, Lord. And I just ask that we would grow. We would grow in our walk and our faith, God, and that you would just get much, much glory from it all. God, as I think back on that passage from Romans 1, when Paul is introducing the letter, and he talks about bringing about the obedience of faith, that he does this for your namesake, God. And we just want to be Christians that faithfully live in obedience for the sake of your name, God. And we thank you for the way that you chose to save us in Jesus' name.